0: Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Opvat Cast. I'm Steve Cuff, and joining me today, I've got Adam Myros. Hello, Steve. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going. It's going, it's going. You uh you off the smokes? No money? What, what's going on, man? do uh, you
2: know. Sometimes, uh, well, what we need is one of those Patreons so people can pay for my cigarettes. <laughs> I, I think that's a good thing. So
1: Patreon goals, we're gonna set that up. Uh if we hit five dollars a week, Adam Myros gets a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Well, with I mean taxes and everything now. Maybe we should make that a ten dollar goal. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also joining me, Jake Trapila. Hey, good evening. How you doing? Doing great, Jake. Good to hear from you. Uh and we have a very special guest. Uh we we bring him out in times of horror and exploitation and everything weird. Uh Jack Eason's with us today.
0: Yay, I'm special. Good you to are. be here. Yeah, I've often yeah.
1: said you you're the most special person that I know.
0: That's wow, that's great. <laughs> you and my mom. That's yeah, beautiful. That's that's <laughs> Don't it's even really, know. You, you, you put me out for like the horror and the exploitation it's like and and it is true because basically all the movies I own are either like highbrow art cinema or absolutely unmitigated trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like, just nothing in between.
1: Filthy pornography and art films. That's yeah, pretty much. And the two the extremes. If you
0: ask some people. <laughs>
1: uh, well, this week we're not exactly talking filthy pornography or art films or. I suppose, traditional exploitation cinema. Uh, We're actually going to be talking about something. It's a movie where it's sort of a mainstream but still kind of indie spin on a lot of horror and exploitation and spaghetti western tropes. Robert Rodriguez has often called this a horror movie, which I don't really think it is. Quentin Tarantino has called it a western, which I don't think it is. I call it a movie where we first discover Quentin Tarantino is obsessed with feet. Uh... We're talking about From Dust Till Dawn, which is 20 years old this week, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. I cannot believe that that movie is that old. Uh, it is the big screen debut of George Clooney, if I'm not mistaken, and even though it's not the first Tarantino movie to, uh, you know, make it to the big screen, it was the first script that he wrote and actually got paid for, so that's that's something. Uh, it, now... I watched this movie when I was in high school. I loved it when I was in college. It was great watching it again. Is this something that you guys were watching for the first time, or had you not seen it in a few years, or do you obsessively watch this twice a day, or what's what's the deal here?
3: Um, I Yeah, I watched it first, and I think it was a... Sophomore. I thought you were going to say you watch
1: school. it twice a day. That would have been...
3: <laughs> I watched it twice a day, every day, for <laughs> 10 years. Um, no, I watched it first time in, I think I was like 14 in high school, and um, my stepbrother at the time found that it was playing on TV, and it was late at night. He's like, all right, don't tell your mom. This movie's got boobies and vampires, and we just had a, a rock and good time. And um, It's one I went and watched a bunch of times after it because I sort of went through this Tarantino is awesome phase mm-hmm. around that time. And uh, I uh, really enjoyed it, uh, revisiting it now. I still enjoyed it. I um, have a few bones to pick, but I'm sure we'll get to that. <laughs> it is, uh,
1: it, it's, it's got a charm to it that yeah. kind of makes it special and stand out from a lot of other movies. Uh, especially, I don't know if we're going to have time to talk about the sequels at all, but uh, if you want to see a charmless version
2: of this movie, that's a good place to start. Myros, how about you? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been familiar with this. this. It might be the first Tarantino I ever saw. I mean, not that he directed it, but in all honesty, I think I probably saw it before I ever got around to But. Serious filmdom, or what amounts to that, when you're watching your Pulp <laughs> Fictions and your uh, Reservoir Dogs, that the early stages of serious filmdom. Uh but uh, yeah, uh, from Thus on, something I something I saw probably late middle school, early in high school, and uh I didn't get that much out of it then. But you know, as I've seen it a few times, I find it to be really enjoyable, uh, largely due to the cast. But uh that era, Robert Rodriguez just has so much. Energy and thrust and it 's just a, a really entertaining film
1: yeah it's it's like really I, I love the pacing of it too, especially when you consider that like what the movie eventually turns into, which spoiler alert by the way, this movie's twenty years old, so fuck off if you're upset um, it, it's like it, it, what it eventually turns into is basically these guys barricaded and, and they have to fight off these vampires, but before you get to that part that 's like maybe the last thirty or forty minutes of the movie, but the bulk of the movie. Is not that at all It's just us Kind of getting to know These characters And considering it's so Like dialogue driven And there's not a ton Of action uh, After the opening scene It still manages to feel Like just really quick And brisk Which is It's nice It's refreshing <laughs> uh, And you know I was joking about Watching it twice a day But I cannot stop thinking About me and Myros's former roommate Who No joke He went on a A streak for like A month at least Where he would watch Like JFK every day? <laughs> or, or no, it wasn't yeah. JFK. It was, was it Bobby? Or which, which one was it? It was some Kennedy? No, movie. No, no, it, it was JFK. It was JFK. It, was <laughs> it would
0: be worse if you watched Bobby every day. <laughs> I could watch that movie once, and that's plenty. Yeah,
1: well, that's kind of how I feel about JFK. I don't know why anyone would be like, yeah, I need more JFK. Yeah, at least but,
0: but people talk about JFK sometimes. No one talks about Bobby. Like, hey, yeah, that Emilio Estevez film. <laughs> well, no
1: it was JFK. It's like, well, you know, I know how this one's going to end. I don't... <laughs>
0: I guarantee you if one person listens to this podcast and hasn't heard of Bobby before and searches in the IMDb, that will show up on the radar as the first hit that film's gotten forever.
1: <laughs> it, do, it does have a very comical cast, though. Like, when you look at the cast, it's appalling.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's got Lindsay Lohan in, in, like, a small role just standing to the side. And, like, oh, yeah. It, it has everyone, but it's like it's an ensemble film. But, but, an yeah, ensemble
1: yeah, film full just... of people that you don't want to see on screen.
0: Yeah. yeah Where or else just,
3: do you I'm, want... Ashton Kutcher and Shia LaBeouf take drugs together in a hotel room. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. If part you say right it right like up. that, it sounds like a sequel to "Dude Where's My Car." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sean Williams Scott wanted too much money to come back. <laughs>
2: That'd be a better by, movie. By the way, Kef, I know we haven't got to Jack's thoughts on the film, but I got to chastise you for calling this Clouty's film debut. Considering we've seen like all of his early uh, trash horror films, like, oh yeah, why well, the I horror guess, high and grizzly two and return of the killer tomatoes that that's that's true he
1: was in those i guess i should say like after he got famous on general hospital this was his like his big screen like wide release movie uh not Versus you know acting in a, in a he trauma film or star,
3: yeah general or hospital, or, hospital whatever it, th- this thing. was his first leading man role in a
0: yeah, film yeah there you go that's a better way of putting first his first film that anyone gave a crap about his first film with uh
1: his first film with tribal tattoos
3: I would argue this is his finest performance to date. It's it's pretty damn good. <laughs> it is. It holds up so well. He is just so you just believe everything he says. He's so compelling. And I don't think we'll get the sad thing is we'll never get another Clooney like this, the you know, the asshole villain Clooney. Mm-hmm. He's he's so good in this film.
1: Also, shout out to George Clooney and from Dust Till Dawn for having the exact same haircut that I had in the sixth grade, so that was pretty cool of him. <laughs> <laughs> Got uh, that Caesar goes. He's Caesar, got that, yeah. that Caesar baby. I was rocking the Caesar pretty hard in middle school. Uh, Jack, how about you? Uh, ha- have you watched this in a while? Or I-,
0: I, I-, I have. Yeah, no, I I watched totally separately. I've been kind of doing a trek through all of Quentin Tarantino's films because I've just I've fallen behind on a few of them and just I'm I keep falling behind in contemporary cinema. I was like, I'm gonna rewatch all of Tarantino's movies because I enjoyed them, but I haven't watched any of them in forever. Mm. And so I picked in from Dusk Till Dawn as just cause it's attached to that he wrote it he starred in it um finding out it's 20 years old this this week is uh makes me feel old i mean i remember seeing it when it first came on tv um mm. you know so yeah i was a teenager it came on i thought it was great fun really enjoyed it watching it again i maybe didn't enjoy it as much but it's still definitely a, you know it still is a really fun movie it's not something i'd get really huffy about if whatever problems are there it's not like it's Mm -hmm. pretending to be particularly uh highbrow or anything sure sure. um so yeah no it's 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 just kind of strange to me that yeah it's been super old or i guess it's just it's kind of old now it's now i'm old too officially (laughs) because that's what happens that's how it works
1: and then we all die uh you know one thing i noticed about this watching it this time that i didn't really catch the last time i watched this movie uh really feels a lot like Grindhouse, you know? Like, when we saw Grindhouse in the theater, it seemed like such a novel idea, like, oh, here's a Tarantino movie, and here's here's a Robert Rodriguez movie. But watching it again, like, the first half of this movie really feels like a Tarantino movie, and then once they get to the, uh, the titty-twister vampire strip club, and it basically turns into Assault on Precinct 13 Vampire Edition, uh, it feels much more like a Robert Rodriguez movie. Um, but it's... And it's so strange, too, because even though, because I I watched the full tilt boogie behind the scenes uh, documentary, which is okay, I suppose. But it it didn't feel like Tarantino was digging his claws into everything. So I I just wonder, I don't know, I I feel like Robert Rodriguez really understands Tarantino and what he wants out of actors and what he wants for movie. Because if, if you were to tell me, oh, this is just a Tarantino movie for the first 30 minutes, I would never think twice about it.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting cuz I think one of the criticisms of well specifically Planet Terror in, in Grindhouse is that a lot of people just feel like Robert Rodriguez really doesn't understand exploitation. And I mm-hmm. you can kind of feel that here too. I almost feel the same way you do. It's like he understands what Quentin Tarantino wants him to do uh yeah. rather than necessarily having this great love uh for the material. It's just,
0: Yeah. Yeah, the film has uh, like what I noticed actually watching it this time around and it's it's not like it's kind of a weird application but it's they kind of looking at it if you want to look at it from kind of a feminist perspective or you know kind of in part that it's kind of gaze on women it's portrayal of violence and so on towards women it's a weird movie because it kind of it shies away it pretends to shy away from things but it's still kind of there's passages of it that look like they were directed by like just a horny nasty 12 year old <laughs>
1: Yeah.
3: Um,
0: and it's kind of like – it's so when you say, like, Rodriguez maybe doesn't – he's not entirely at home with exploitation as an idea. The film does have this kind of weird thing of kind of we've got to do this, but I'm not – I don't want to look directly at it, but we're kind of – we're going to have to look at it eventually. Um, you know, there's kind of strange things like the – when they kill the bank teller at mm-hmm. the, the start and they do that kind of quick editing thing where they show scenes of gore and awfulness kind of like just flashing on the screen – you know, as if they kind of were getting this sense of this awful thing that's happened without being shown it. But I mean, it's kind of it's just there. You you don't really they're not really hiding anything. And then mm-hmm. later on, when he's like staring at Juliette Lewis in the the back of the RV, oh, it's, it's just really there's really just kind of weird vibe to it. It's kind of like mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't actually enjoy what he's doing, but he's doing it because it's there and he's supposed to. I don't know. It's it's kind of a bit mixed up there. But yeah, that's.
1: I, th- I think it's important to point out, too, that, y- yeah, you're definitely right. Like, there's there's a lack of confidence at moments with uh, the way that Rodriguez directs this. And I think part of that, and this came up in, I want to say it came up in the documentary, or maybe it was just something that I read, um, but the vampires bleed green. And part of that decision was because Robert Rodriguez knew that this was going to be kind of a gory movie, and he was, like, terrified of getting an NC-17 rating, uh, so I feel like some of the some of the you know like the hotel scene and some of the other scenes it's almost like he toned them down intentionally because he was really worried that this was going to get an NC seventeen for some reason and while it is gory I don't like if if the vampires bled red instead would really make that much of a difference it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal like I I don't know
0: yeah it's kind of weird I mean it's it's one of those funny things it's something I held against Tarantino for a while in my little film fan heart um that start of of kill, with kill bill was uh, it's kind of weird that quentin tarantino quotes so much of exploitation film but he never he hasn't really take and he's a huge fan kind of huge director that has huge fans he could instigate change in the system i feel if he really wanted if he forced issues and um, maybe the weinsteins talked him down but like kill bill had to be they put sequences in black and white for the american release to avoid an nc-17 rating Mm-hmm. um a yeah. few things like that, and it's like if any director could have forced the m p a a or for like sold an n c seventeen movie to you know kind of up the, the profile, mm-hmm. you know, it, to, to release an NC-17 movie that didn't flop yeah. in cinemas, <laughs> it, could, it would have been Tarantino, but they did back down on that, even though it's like the dumbest thing in the world. They just, oh, it's in black and white, now it's not Which, violent.
1: And, and that's, yeah, that's like absolutely hilarious, because I, I don't see why making it black and white makes it any less violent, and also, after seeing The Hateful Eight, I... <laughs> Like, Jesus Christ, like, if you want to talk about a movie that could definitely get an NC-17 rating if it wanted to, I think there's your prime candidate. Good Lord.
0: Yeah so it's it's weird that i mean as exploitation this movie is like who makes an exploitation movie while worried about it? like i hope the censors aren't too angry with me mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of a weird because because there's too much money at stake with these these movies They're, they can't just be thrown into a, a drive-through to you know play to people who don't give a crap about it and kind of make its money back off that first distribution run just because people put it on the screen yeah you know it's it's it kind of it's 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 fun they're reappropriating the model or whatever, the idea, but the model is completely different behind it now. So it doesn't, you know, which means the new exploitation movie is categorically different to the original, to the, the mm-hmm. 70s grindhouse art scene.
1: It's just a shame that Quentin Tarantino couldn't make Showgirls. <laughs>
0: <laughs> look! Look! Uh, this this is a sore spot for me. One of the great defenders of showgirls <laughs> Jack Defe- died. This died last what like last week, and and he was one of the only directors I know of who defended showgirls. And I also semi defend showgirls. I
1: I don't know if I will. Defend Showgirls. I will defend two things about Showgirls. Uh, the first thing I will defend is uh, Elizabeth Berkeley's pool sex scene, which is just absolutely hilarious, where she's <laughs> flopping around yes, like a fish. Yes, it is. Um, which is, I mean, that's just incredible. I could watch you that look all day. At McLaughlin's face. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing I will defend is if I'm not mistaken, there was a special edition of Showgirls that came out, oh, probably, God, like 10 years ago or something, and it included a uh, a pair of like sex dice and some nipple tassels. Which I think is a yep. cool thing to put in your special edition. So you know, if if you're if you're out there and you happen to be a horror movie distributor and you're saying what what can I add to this package to really put it over the edge? Nipple tassels is definitely the here's, answer.
0: Here's the thing, though, about because it, it kind of brings it back to the exploitation model. Showgirls was a big flop. It, you know, it kind of went. It was released NC seventeen and it didn't pull in the numbers. Movie theaters wouldn't run it. People didn't want to go to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was a it was notoriously a flop. It is now. One of the top 10 best selling movies in, I think it's MGM released it. It's one of the top 10 best selling movies in their film catalog on home video. <laughs> so when people say Showgirls is a flop, what actually happened is that no one went to the theater and they waited till they go watch it in their living room. That's what happened. And everyone bought a copy when it came out on DVD, apparently. Oh,
2: Jesus. <laughs>
3: Who
2: owns a, a copy of Showgirls?
3: I do. I, in fact, there's another defender <laughs> of too. Showgirls. It has the greatest <laughs> DVD commentary I've ever heard. It's this guy who's a journalist in Seattle, and he's also a defender of Showgirls. And it's like the greatest fan commentary of all time, how he describes how every like, wrong choice in the film made it amazing. He describes it aptly as, as a butterfly turning into a caterpillar. <laughs> so, so, if you have a chance to seek it out, the the, the audio commentary for Showgirls, the fan commentary. I don't is think the, I've
0: ever listened to that. I mostly listen to to Paul Verhoeven commentaries because he spends all his time just laughing at the movies and kind of going like, I can't believe I left that in. Oh, this is so violent. This is weird, uh, which is pretty good in itself. But oh lord, <laughs> we're pretty far off the track now.
1: Hey, let's bring it on back, Jake. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, if you look at Robert Rodriguez's career, he it's it's really bizarre especially for a filmmaker who's very well known um i, I guess you could kind of categorize his early career as in the realm of from Dust till dawn like you know you look at desperado and once upon a time in mexico and yeah. uh El mariachi and they all have a very similar feel to them and mm-hmm. from Dust till dawn seems like the kind of a logical progression plus a little tarantino uh you know meddling in there uh where does this fit in for you in in his career and and more importantly what's going on with his career why is there so much shark boy and lava girl and and uh, <laughs> uh, spy kids <laughs>
3: Well, I think it's like what happened with George Miller after he had kids. He made the Mad Max films, and then he had kids, and then he started making Babe, Pig in the City, and The Did, Happy did,
1: did he have films. his first child like halfway through Beyond Thunderdome? Because, like, the first 20 he minutes of that it. movie rocks, and then after that, it just basically turns into a horrible children's movie.
0: He, he may he, have just found some kids in a the desert. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's yeah.
2: The last hour, that's definitely, it's basically Hook, I got to say. It's yeah, like it's more or less Hook. Movie
3: Rob Rodriguez is interesting because he's always kind of been like a a DIY a DIY filmmaker. He's not just the director, but he's also the editor, the producer, the cinematographer, the craft service guy. And he raised seven thousand dollars on his own to make El Mariachi, and then after that allowed him to do Desperado, and then uh, eventually teamed up with Tarantino, and then they did. This film, and then I think after they did Four Rooms, um, which by all accounts is unwatchable. And then he started having kids, and I'm guessing that's why he made Spy Kids and The Shark Boy and Lava Girl. But at the same time, he was still trying to uh, please his adult audience, and there's films like Sin City and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But they're all just – now he makes things that are just so – they look so cheap and so – brushed and it it, there's no sense of fun to it all anymore it's it's all they're all run through machines just because of how filmmaking has evolved to make things as fast and as cheaply as possible and he's Mm -hmm. always kind of been a guy that shoots fast and cheap but now he has like legitimate resources to do so and it it takes out the heart of the kind of films he's been making so Mm -hmm. i think i don't think he's done anything good probably since grindhouse which i do enjoy Mm-hmm. Um, but he's had a lot of lulls in his career here and there and I think that Rob Rodriguez we once knew is gone yeah, yeah it
2: does feel like more than almost any director he's probably suffered from the transition to digital
3: yeah
0: yeah. I think he's uh, weirdly I think he suffered almost from the transition to having money it's like he, yeah. he, he like he seems to work best when he's up against the wall just kind of trying to make things work with just ingenuity and kind of just Improvisation, mm-hmm. and his his movies. Once he had money, they I think he just started to realize he could just shoot stuff as is standard, and it kind of got flat pretty quickly. Yeah, um, but I will I will give him credit. Sin City is actually one of the first movies I remember. I hated Sin City when I saw it. I actually hate that movie. Uh, well, I haven't watched it in years, but I really disliked that movie. That was one of the first movies that I sought out other film fans just so i could bitch about it and it turned into like my my lifelong life of, uh, that's that's your uh... movies. so so i owe a debt to that 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 sin city was a weirdly important movie to my development as the terrible critic i am today um so thanks thanks rob
1: hey you know he's, he's gonna do something for you uh yeah it, i i definitely agree that he works better when he's on a tight budget um i mean from dusk till dawn Probably when he made it, I don't know how much Desperado it cost to make, but I think the budget on From Dusk Till Dawn was like eighteen million or something like that. And I mean, once you factor in, you know, marketing and uh, all that stuff, promotion, I think it it probably just about broke even. Because a good rule of thumb is is you know take the film's gross and then add half of that gross again. So if it made, you know. I don't know, $30 million, then yeah, it's barely, barely breaking even barely turning a profit. And when you consider that Robert Rodriguez was sort of a hot indie director at that point, especially when indie cinema, American indie cinema was really starting to take off and Tarantino was like this indie darling at the time, you'd think they probably had higher expectations than how much it actually made. (laughs)
2: I, I I would imagine so, but it's such a strange movie. I mean, they kind of had to know what they were getting into. I mean, it's it's yeah. not a movie that's geared to the mainstream. And it's only because of their cachet that they got it made, I'm sure. It's one sure. of those – it's kind of an interesting to me to look at it at like the crossroads between uh, sort of where Rodriguez was at the time and what he'd done in the past – and and this is kind of transitioning more into what Tarantino plans to do in the future totally separate from what Rodriguez would go on to do like most directly after this he kind of stops doing this sort of uh fast-paced gonzo film and mm-hmm. what he did the faculty after this and uh oh, um, Jesus I forgot Yeah that I, <laughs> from Dust Till Dawn is is really reminiscent of of stuff like Desperado but in another way it's almost reminiscent of stuff like of Kill Bill and grindhouse obviously and mm-hmm. even hateful eight and stuff like that where it's got this sort of genre revenant or er, revenance, yes <laughs> reverence that uh the oh, revenant see, that re- damn exactly. revenant
0: movie keeps it's, coming up again and again
2: it's all i can't get it off my mind since i've seen it it's so haunting
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> it would be the first movie to tell you that it's haunting <laughs>
2: uh yeah but i mean the reverence for genre film that this has is it's he, it's before Tarantino really started doing that sort of thing and it's kind of interesting to see yeah, it's, where these true. two guys came from at that point
0: i think i think it's interesting cuz yeah it, it's i think that Tarantino i mean his earliest films they still have so much there there's a lot of these references to genre Within his work, but it's kind of like he was still very much working within his own mold. I mean, Reservoir Dogs basically takes like its storyline from uh, City on Fire, the Ringo Lam Hong Kong film. Like it takes the last fifteen minutes of that movie and makes a movie out of that fifteen minutes, but with Tarantino dialogue and mm-hmm. you know his other movies have the you know they, they're laced with all these references. But from Duster to dawn, did strike me that it's probably the first one to really just kind of like here's Tom Savini, here's Fred Williamson, here's, you know, all these people that if you're a horror fan, you know who these people oh, are. God. Not just and Tom Savini,
1: all- but Tom Savini with a bullwhip and the name Sex Machine.
0: Hey, yes, <laughs> uh, and, just, and kind of put it all in the in the film together and kind of go, yeah, and, it's, you know, things like um, the kid with his Precinct 13 t-shirt that they mocked up, you know, obviously for John Carpenter reference, I think they're just very bold Kind of, you all know what we're talking about here. You know mm-hmm. who these guys are. We don't have to tell you. you know. And, and yeah, I think Tarantino would start to move, go, move more in that way. Although I think Tarantino still maintains a voice throughout. Um, yeah. I but think... From Dusk to Dawn is is the first film, or the, one of the earlier ones, I feel. It feels very much like a kind of an homage, very openly, to all of those films.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd say... It, it's, yeah, it's crazy to think that this is a Robert Rodriguez movie because, yeah, like you guys were both saying, you and Myros, uh, this is basically – it sets the template for the direction that Quentin Tarantino's career is going to go in. And I, I just like – the fact that he was so successful with Pulp Fiction and then he wrote uh, Natural Born Killers, which was – I think that was sort of a successful – uh, and then I know True Romance was pretty successful, so they were like, you know what, you want to shoot a cheap indie film, non-union, just go out in the desert, do whatever you want. And you can tell that there was no editor here for Tarantino's script; just it's it's wacky as shit. Also, this movie says fuck about nine thousand times. That's like every other word out of George Clooney's mouth. Um, <laughs> it is.
0: Yeah. It's it, yeah. It's it, it's kind of he weird. He I mean, it, it so well. He does. He it does. does. It's very
1: natural. Yeah.
0: And they, but they, and I think uh, to go back to Jake's point about how good Clooney is in the movie. I think part of that is because, I mean, no offense to Tarantino, but like Clooney carries Tarantino. Tarantino is just like the unstable guy. Oh Jesus, and-
1: yeah, Quentin Tarantino acting is never good, and this is probably Quentin Tarantino's best performance, and that's yeah. saying something.
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, what about Django? Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> he was good in Django. No, <laughs> get out of here. He's <laughs> <is> pretty awesome. <laughs>
0: Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's like Tarantino is just—he's—he's he's the awkward evil one, and it's—I think it was probably maybe a mistake to make Tarantino that guy because mm-hmm. he's just. But whatever, so so it goes. I mean, I think Clooney does shine. <laughs> Harvey, like, I mean, he's he's sandwiched between Harvey Keitel, <laughs> George Clooney, so he's okay.
1: I actually, I would have liked the the movie better if they uh, if they swapped out. Uh, tarantino for uh, harvey Keitel, like if they switched roles and tarantino was the preacher and harvey Keitel was the sex craze maniac just like
3: channeling the bad lieutenant <laughs> see that's kind of like what the role that's what they used to play because Clooney was just this nice guy saving lives on er mm-hmm. and uh harvey Keitel was really in these these smutty films himself and also in reservoir dogs and then now he's kind of this this meek Unassuming preacher who just wants what's right for his family after his wife died, and 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 like I said, this is we'll never see Clooney like this again. He's no. just always going to be the hero.
1: And just like even even when you watch Full Tilt Boogie, uh, which again is if you're interested at all in this movie, it's it's worth putting on the background. It's not the most compelling documentary, but it's it's interesting to see how this movie was made. Um, but he's Clooney is just like so open and just dicking around with the crew and palling around and I just like I cannot picture a modern day George Clooney acting like that and then Car- Harvey Keitel is just like a giant douchebag and it's it's really weird
3: <laughs> it's almost <laughs> worth alone just for seeing that bizarre interview he gives on camera that is one of the most yeah what the fuck am I watching moments it, it doesn't saw. even make
1: any sense they're just like hey we're like I think Tarantino's like hey Harvey how are you and he's just like let me tell you about what acting is <laughs> It's like, oh, okay, all right.
0: I, I, you get the feeling. I mean, because Kaitel, like Bad Lieutenant, for example, like Kaitel is the. For me, he's the only reason to watch that movie. I that like Kaitel's performance. Of that movie is absolutely just vicious, potent, fearless. It's mm. crazy. Uh, and he kind of the whole film centers around that. I and from that performance alone, you get the sense that Kitele may not be the most normal, easy to hang out with person. No, uh, if that's what he does for his day job.
1: Also, I want Michael Parks, who plays uh, the sheriff. I want him to be my grandpa in real life, please, if that's possible. He's like just amazing, and all the interviews with him behind the scenes. He's just he is his character. It, it's like there's there's no difference between Michael Parks, the actor, and you know the sheriff that he plays. And I think i guess technically does does from Dust till dawn take place in like a weird quentin tarantino movie universe because michael so, parks plays th- the same character in like a million different movies <laughs> tarantino. Th- that's
3: a that's a common thing in tarantino's films is that all of his movies seem to be in the same world mm-hmm. um because the vic vega was mr blonde's name in reservoir dogs and uh fuck, what's his name uh, John, John Travolta, Travolta yeah, John Travolta Travolta is, Travolta. is Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. and then a lot of characters have the same last names that carry over to other films. So it's kind of like the, these Easter eggs he leaves in for his fans who pay close enough attention that can kind of connect and say, oh, hey, this is from this film. And, and yeah, Michael Parks shows up as the same sheriff <laughs> in all the films, which technically would – Put from dust till dawn in the future of all the films just because of what happens to him in the beginning there
1: you go that makes perfect sense
3: yeah (laughs) i connected the lines this week that's that was it that
1: was it we finally have it solved
0: solved mystery
1: (laughs) people have been asking about that one for so long um you know another thing that i really respected about this movie that i hadn't really thought of before uh the special effects are really really good uh it makes really great use of practical effects and then also, there's there's a lot of CGI which is clearly dated. But for 1996 CGI, it's the best kind where it's clearly cheap, but it's not intrusive, and it does it's not it's never in my face at all. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's one of the few instances where I feel like the CGI is it's it's charming instead of distracting, which is amazing in the year 1996 good lord like other than I, I the only movies i can think of from that era are like jurassic park and then from dusk till dawn where i don't see 90s cgi and just like have a seizure and vomit on myself uh <laughs> maybe that's another problem altogether uh but yeah i i just i don't know i i really i really like the uh, special effects and i also like just the attention to detail with all the characters and how they're killing off the vampires too uh Harvey Keitel's character with the shotgun baseball bat combo where he, he can make a cross and reload his shotgun at the same time. It's just like, oh, God, that's brilliant. I love that so much.
3: There's also, yeah, there's a lot of great sight gags with the whole sequence. Like, I like where Fred Williamson impales four dancers onto the table legs. Oh, yeah. Or or yeah. when Danny trails Drejo's impaled on the pool table and his eyes go into the pockets like cute balls and there's even a sound effect as they sink. Mm-hmm. And it, wow. does, it does a really good job of, of sort
1: of building up these characters and just making them naturally cool and making them care about us. Like, why would I care about Tom Savini, some mustachioed muscle man in leather named Sex Machine, but they, they the, find a way to do, the do it? gun cock. Yeah, exactly, because he's got, he's got a gun on his penis that he can shoot, and he carries around a bullwhip for no reason other than he's fucking awesome. Like, you automatically get invested in these characters just from those two, like, 10-second scenes.
0: Well, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, again, it's because if you're watching this movie and you're part of the intended audience, I mean, it's the second you see Tom Savini, you know who he is and where he comes from. So, it's, mm-hmm. that, so I mean, they, yeah, they give him his, his little character traits, but everyone's pretty much should be on their side right out right at the gate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I would say about the special effects, I think that the special effects are really, they are very successful for, for the age of the film and for its, its era and budget. Uh, I did find that with all of the exploding at a certain point, it was almost like there was a bit of an overload, and I believe they actually cut quite a lot of, they had other special effects mocked up they didn't use, possibly for fear of censorship or mm-hmm. whatever. But um, I did find at a certain point of just exploding things of everybody's just exploding, I was kind of like, oh, it's like Frankenhooker a little. Uh, just, <laughs> but uh, that's probably that's probably me uh, more than more than the movie. But it was kind of at a certain point, it's like exploding strippers. Uh, it's very close, so I feel maybe that was consciously done. Probably not, but I'm gonna pretend.
3: There actually, there actually is. They did cut one thing for censorship. I also watched Full Tilt Boogie, which. Uh, It does have its moments. I think the highlights for me when they kind of show how some of the vampire effects were made. Mm -hmm. And there was this one that they designed where the vampire had like this mouth on its stomach that would open and close as the vampire walked. And at one point it puts a biker's head into its stomach and then bites its head off and throws the body down while George Clooney just kind of watches it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tarantino even said he didn't want to see that in the film, so they cut that out. Wow, uh, well,
1: <laughs> it's it it's crazy too because like if you watch that in the documentary, you're like, oh, that looks amazing. Why didn't they keep that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of surprised there hasn't been a, a extended all in edition. It's the kind of movie that you think would be a no brainer to polish up the special effects and.
1: I want to say that there. that that could be the fault of Miramax, who notoriously doesn't do shit with their movies, no matter how popular they are. Like they're always super bare bones uh, because. The the Blu-ray transfer slash high def version of this movie that's on Netflix, it kind of looks like dog shit. Like there was clearly no work done at all. It was just upresed and just tossed on a Blu-ray disc. There's like no extras at all. It's like just, Je-
0: Jennifer Lawrence's Oscar nominations don't come cheap, so that's I think that's where Miramax's money's going these that's, days.
1: That's probably it. That makes. perfect Well, well you it. mean
2: how like they did uh, release Grindhouse as a single film for like five years and still haven't released Kill Bill as a single film. <laughs> Oh, like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's kind
0: of weird. Japan, if you're a Quentin Tarantino fan, you want to see the movies the way Tarantino wanted, Japan is the only country in the world where they oh, released like, the theatrical version of uh, Grindhouse, and they released uh, Kill Bill without the black and white transitions. So yeah. that's uh, And for some reason, they never got pulled back, mm-hmm. I guess. It's just kind of strange. But well,
1: I, I, have a, I have a theory about the Kill Bill set, actually. Uh, usually how these things work is... I purchase something and then immediately a better edition of it is announced. So there's like a shitty, uh, two in one Blu-ray of Kill Bill volume one and Kill Bill volume two, but separated because God forbid you give us the the version that, uh, you know, we were meant to see. So if, if I were to spend the $8 on Amazon and purchase that, I guarantee it would be like announced tomorrow. Uh, this actually happened when I last time it happened was when I bought return of the living dead on Blu-ray. I was like, Oh, cool. It's like five bucks. I'll pick this up. And then the next day, I think, uh, Scream Factory announced that they were putting out a special edition of it.
0: Well, you could the <laughs> Patreon thing, you know. Puts, yeah, Patreon. <laughs> puts, maybe we can just give you money towards buying <laughs> yeah. shitty editions of movies. Yeah, so That's good editions
1: happens. come out.
2: That's That would be perfect.
0: I feel, it is a, I feel I help with that, too. I buy a lot of movies and I was like, oh, shinier edition.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of interesting to look at that. Like We were talking earlier about how Tarantino had seemingly no cachet, considering he was probably at the height of his powers when, when Kill Bill was coming out, and he still had mm-hmm. to make cuts for the uh, MPAA and had to split his film in fucking two. It's like, wh- why in the hell was he treated like that? You'd think mm-hmm. he would have enough sway mm-hmm. to just be like, fuck you, I'm not fucking doing this. Which is crazy, too, because
1: yeah, I, I think you're definitely right Like in terms of um, you know his his cultural cachet and everything. He was definitely... Right there when Kill Bill came out. Like, there was nobody bigger. And now, uh, I'm going back to The Hateful Eight again, but holy shit. Like, that is a movie that could easily be chopped into two movies. It has a fucking intermission which I don't think a movie has had since, like, 1965 or something, the drive-in where there's, like, a dancing hot dog on the screen. So there's an intermission. It's gory as shit. Could have easily gotten NC-17. No problem. They're dropping N-bombs left and right, (laughs) you know? But I don't think anybody made any massive cuts to that. And he's shot it in a format that hadn't been used since, like, Lawrence of Arabia. So, I I mean... I, it's it's weird that he's making that movie now, I guess. Yeah,
0: I think I think it's it's just goes to show that it's at a certain point of money, I think Tarantino is big enough business because the MPAA are notorious. They only intervene when it's a small player. Like they don't give a crap about anything else. They mm-hmm. you know, unless it becomes like a cultural issue. Generally speaking, if it's coming from a major studio, it'll get an or rating that's understood. Yeah. Uh but if it's someone who's untested, you know, someone they they can actually bully easily. Then they just they they you know, or if someone they can bully, they'll they'll jump in there and and it's notorious. The MPA don't even tell you what you have to cut. I and mean, people keep sure. complaining about like the the British Film Censorship Board and how they can ban movies and they're awful. But like they actually have to explain what they do, whereas the MPA can just make crap up and just
1: yeah, they can do whatever know. the hell they want. Pretty so much you no,
0: know, we know it's getting NC seventeen, and then you cut just it's like why just cut stuff out until we give it an R. That's literally that, and that's actually it. Like you have to just cut what you think they're giving it a higher rating for out uh to whatever you think is appropriate so they really want you to overcut it rather than Mm. you know just take out whatever is officially there which is ridiculous but
2: yeah oh yeah absolutely Uh, i guess all i can think of is like maybe miramax like that and i mean we weren't very far removed from pulp fiction saw kill bill as like a cash cow like blockbuster film and they're not looking at at his stuff like that anymore they're looking at more as a prestige film yeah now he's like
1: hey i want to tour the country and and show this in 70 millimeters so uh is that cool (laughs) it's true
0: speaking of speaking of the 70 mil presentation uh, uh guy i know had he brought me down they had they actually printed in chicago they played at the music box in 70 mil the panavision 70 millimeter and they actually printed up uh, like theatrical booklets to give out to everyone in the audience oh my god uh, yeah. yeah so like the real old the, the like the old school film mm-hmm. theater experience where you get a program with your movie so uh, you, i don't know if, if tarantino did that or if the theater did that but it's kind of it's kind of cool but uh, i guess it goes with a prestige film not everyone's going to paid for that
1: yeah that's wild jesus Uh, i i think when i saw it in 70 millimeter the one thing that i really liked was you know we've gotten so accustomed to digital projectors and there's there's all these moments especially in the beginning where it's just completely silent and i remember the first the first time that that happened you could hear the projector going and like everybody in the theater sort of chuckled because it was this this moment of revelation like oh, yeah, this is actually being projected. That's why it looks like this. It was weird because, yeah, it's like something you take for granted. But, oh, yeah, you don't have that weird ambient noise in the background from the projector anymore.
2: Yeah, I guess, like, the the last thing that fascinates me about this film is, like, when you look at 1996, and there's actually, like, a question of who the more vital filmmaker in American indie cinema is between Rodriguez and Tarantino. And you just it's interesting to look at it through you know a historical filter and just where they went and what they well, did I mean, and i mean well, like if you look at four rooms like rodriguez segment blows tarantino's out of the water it's like the only good thing in that film <laughs>
0: Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Well, I don't, I don't know. I think Rodriguez's section in that film is definitely is the best section. I don't know. Like, it's honestly, there's not much in that film that I really like. But Rodriguez <laughs> is, is exactly what it's supposed to be, and he does it well. Um, right. And Tarantino's is basically like I saw an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents once. So let's talk about it for a while. <laughs> uh, well, the camera spins in circles, and that's oh, the whole thing. And it's yeah. But I mean, it, at the same time, in 1996, uh, Tarantino had already won the the top prize at the Cannes Film Festival. So. So he like he was, uh, and uh, maybe maybe they just thought it was a fluke. I don't know. Like, because Pulp Fiction is as I, I watched that, rewatched that recently. And my kind of my comment on that was that if Pulp Fiction isn't like Pulp Fiction, might not be the greatest American movie of the '90s, but it is the most American movie of the '90s. It is the defining mm-hmm. Zeitgeist picture of that decade.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I I'd agree totally, and I don't yeah. think anyone's underselling that. But I think we do hit, undersell at this point what desperado and el mariachi had and wh- how they earmarked rodriguez's career like mm-hmm. he was supposed to be one of the greats
0: it's and certainly i mean it really there was a lot there but i mean let's like say just that tarantino had this critical acclaim and it's and it's interesting because i think and you know maybe part of it comes from the fact that i think tarantino was discovered in europe first um i believe reservoir dogs really pulled in a lot of its original early plaudits from england when it was first released uh, if I recall correctly, and then it kind of got re-released in the US off the back of that, um, maybe maybe not that, but I, I believe that it kind of got more recognition in in England critically at the time than in the US where. It- Kind of took a while to build up steam. And then Pulp Fiction's early, I mean, Khan, it was the the darling of the French film circuit. Uh, And obviously Mm -hmm. Americans tend to be very suspicious of things French people like, which is (laughs) ironic because like Alfred Hitchcock and John Ford were filmmakers that if it hadn't been for French critics, people might not be talking about them anymore. Mm Uh, So that's kind of odd. But anyway, you know, it's I think like Tarantino, maybe it's true, maybe America, in some respect, was looking more towards Robert Rodriguez and his, his films that were more in a way kind of more Americana, maybe than than tarantino tarantino was pulling in references from all over the place sure sure early films and maybe rodriguez seemed the more american director
2: i agree
1: 100 percent that he's he's the more american director not only when you watch his movies but if you look at his story like if, if i'm trying to spin the story of robert rodriguez in you know 1990 as the next great independent filmmaker in america and this darling of of indie cinema it's great, because it's it's like this rags-to-riches story, basically. He had $7,000, and he made this hit movie, and then he was able to finance another movie, and then he got discovered, and it's, it's just a great story, and it works. And even though that $7,000 story, I don't know how much that is actually true, uh, but it, it plays really well, it reads really well, and it's... <laughs> it's definitely an American-sounding story. It just,
0: yeah, it just it just makes me sad because I'm pretty sure Shane Cruth also raised the magical seven thousand dollars to make Primer, which is like literally one of the greatest American films of the last what I don't know how old it is within yeah. the last decade or so, and most people yeah. don't know who he is. And he made like Upstream Color, which arguably is an even greater film, and uh, still most people don't know who he is. Well, like, and, damn, it, he made a movie for nothing. <laughs> give him respect.
1: And I, I think that I think the difference is is you know I like El Mariachi and I think it's super charming, but it definitely looks like it was made for seven thousand dollars whereas mm-hmm. primer if you tell me oh it was made for seven grants like, what
3: really wow that's impressive
0: <laughs> just had to that's buy a, a lot of white shirts mm-hmm, fun, fun, funny need.
3: story i went to a there was a screening here in la of primer with shane caruth doing A Q&A after and then they asked him about the budget and he said he watched el mariachi and found out it was made for seven thousand dollars and he's like oh yeah seven thousand dollars that seems like that should be the budget for any movie i can if he did that <laughs> i can do that And he kind of regretted. He wished he had more because most of it went into the film stock. But um, it was kind of an interesting learning experience for him to see how he could play around with that little of a budget. Yeah, and
0: and that makes great sense that that Rodriguez set the template because, I mean, that was what everyone talked about with Rodriguez for for the longest time was the fact that he could – you could like lock him in a room like the A-team and he'd come out with a movie. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, and and I I think like his book is even called like, I made a movie for $7,000 or something like that. And I, I think it's interesting now too because I would say like the concept of being able to make a, a feature length film that isn't complete garbage for less than ten grand. It's it's almost more viable now because, like you said, Jake, he had a, Shane Cruz had to buy all that film stock, and obviously uh, Rodriguez had to do the same. Now you just shoot digital, and it's not a problem. Like there's consumer grade cameras that can make a movie that looks pretty damn good. How much yeah. did? Uh, Oh God! How much did Tangerine cost to make? It, the The cost of an iPhone that the director probably already owned, like
3: <laughs> yeah, the an iPhone and a donut is pretty much all the budget that went into
0: that film. Pretty much, <laughs>
1: that's it. That's all you need.
0: It's true. Nowadays, the issue with like low, super low budget film is trying to find the good film among the just scores of films that wannabe directors have put together just cuz it is that easy to put together a film for pretty much nothing.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, what's what's the criteria exactly for getting on Netflix these days? It it has a beginning and it has an end maybe? I mean, <laughs> like,
0: I think I think a card with a smiley face, something like that. I don't know. Something like that.
1: <laughs> and e- even even so, I'm sure Netflix has some sort of screening process, Lord knows what it is, but if if you look at like the uh, the the VOD uh, video on demand market, God, like, holy shit, there is horrible, horrible things, video on demand. It's just like, things you that like- no one should watch. <laughs>
0: You mean like the, the Jessica Alba film called The Veil that I just watched the other day? Cause exactly. It's just tired. like,
1: oh, I, I found my family's home movies from 1992. I'm going to send it uh, in a, a FedEx package to Comcast, and they'll just put it on video on demand. Here's a
0: movie where everyone looks like they just are bored. Like, yeah. no one cares. I, that's
1: that's no what I do. Really and then I just write like a little one-sheet where I'm like, yeah, it's, it's an homage to uh, Lars von Trier's early work. And, uh, yeah, here it is. <laughs>
0: Dogma ninety six, <laughs> yeah,
1: Dogma ninety six. That's what we call it. Uh, it's 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 a whole new film movement. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I, I think I think it's easier. You could kind of say this with almost anything, whether it's it's music or, or video games or film or what have you. It's easier to make something now. But I think, kind of getting noticed when you're awash in a sea of shit that's kind of the bigger problem
0: yeah it still needs to be picked up by a recognizable player i think it's you know someone had, like blair witch project was made for virtually nothing but no one would have known about it if it hadn't gotten picked up by a major distributor same mm-hmm. with paranormal activity mm-hmm. so like everyone can make a movie in their bedroom but you still have to be able to sell that movie to people who are in the business of making people look at movies oh right
2: exactly. yeah well those movies have proven above all that you need a uh, sound Marketing strategy,
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh no, yeah. Uh, I, I guarantee the marketing budget for Paranormal Activity was probably ten times the actual
2: budget of the movie oh, itself, oh, at, at least a yeah, hundred yeah. times. <laughs> yeah, I. It's just again, I'm just fascinated that this guy who came up with Tarantino and Soderbergh and and basically the greatest voices of his generation is making like machete kills in space next year or some fucking shit. It's like (laughs) why are you doing this, man? Yeah. You're better than this. It just makes you it just makes you so glad that Tarantino does exist in this strange uh, form of arrested development where it's just like a giant child who doesn't get old and shitty ever. Mm-hmm.
0: It is one of the weird things I found out about four rooms, um, which I didn't know. Originally, it was supposed to be five rooms, and Richard Linklater was supposed to be the fifth He's part of the that fifth room. <laughs> and um, just, I don't know what he would have contributed, But I, and I'm not a huge fan of Richard Linklater, honestly, but I respect his work. Uh, and I'm just thinking, whatever he came up with, surely could have been... It, it, would have had to be top tier within the film or upper tier. Here's a considering question. Considering at least half the movie was garbage. Well,
2: who, who are the other two rooms? Uh, there's um, uh, some female director. Uh, Alison we'll Anders
0: and, and Alexander something, something or other. Uh, I've I'd Obviously, they've
1: gone on Marvel. to really great careers, haven't
0: Alexander they? Alexander Rockwell. What? That sounds um, like a
1: banker. <laughs> He's directed oh, nine,
0: nine films. Yeah. Um, so that's something none of which I have seen.
3: <laughs>
2: uh, which is really saying something. That segment with that, like the fucking witch's brew or whatever. We, Jesus Christ! That that's why I where it turned
3: it off. I tried to watch it, but I couldn't even.
1: Make <laughs> you turned
2: it out. off in like the first twenty minutes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: like yeah. A terrible man just there, it's not like I can tell you no, no, if you work through it it's like the best you will see is uh, Robert Rodriguez doing kind of a slapstick comedy little bit, and Antonio Banderas gives a pretty solid kind of comic performance in it, and that's that's the fun and then Tarantino's section is or it's not fun, but it's like it successfully convinces you that you know it's what he wanted on the screen and it was you know good for him, and then Tarantino's thing is really. Probably the best part of that is Bruce Willis who apparently had to he's uncredited in the film because uh SAG were going to sue him because he worked not he, he breached union contract rules by doing the film somehow so he had to be uncredited in the movie and he's just drunk and, and he just kind of was awkwardly wandering around in the background um you know successfully playing drunk and honestly I think he's probably the best part of Tarantino's section uh <laughs> and yeah if you if you wade through it that's that's your reward is those things which really yeah, I feel there's gift cards in gas stations that hand out better rewards than what I've just described.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the Rodriguez' segment is is basically boilerplate early Rodriguez. It's energetic, it's fun. Uh, Banderas is very charming, and the Tarantino segment suffers greatly from. Uh, yeah, know, it's know, it's it's lead actor Quentin Tarantino. So.
0: Yeah, it, I know. I know some of the other people who show up in the movie are like they're whatever the the video store that Tarantino used to work in. They're like people he used to work with. So I think that's kind of that that lets you know it's sort of hey, I'm making a movie. Everyone want to show up. I don't think there was a lot of thought went into it. <laughs> Certainly, I mean from the early from the first section with the witches where they got like I mean they have Madonna there. They have is. It, and I just don't know what they were trying to do. I, like literally that that film confused me because I literally had no, – I don't even know what they were trying to ape in that movie, if anything. <laughs> it just made no sense. Oh, so, Lord.
3: What, what bothered me the most about it was – I mean not from it just not being good, but Tim Roth, his performance is just so appalling. It To come right after doing Reservoir, what, Reservoir Dogs to have like this like jittery – Mr. Bean esque performance where he just overplays every single thing that he does. It that It got old so fast.
0: What, what I've heard about the film is that all of the directors directed uh, Tim Roth. They, they each just kind of. So he had four different sets of direction, technically, from the directors. And I get the feeling he's better in Rodriguez's section. He's noticeably better. Mm-hmm. And he's a little better in Tarantino's section. I think at the first movie, I think he. They just told him do more, whatever you're doing. Just I, so I think I feel it's probably not Roth's fault. I feel he was just kind of caught between a bunch of different people who didn't oh, know what God. to do. Yeah,
1: I can't so, even imagine it's just like four people yelling at him, telling him to do different. Oh God!
0: <laughs> like be twitchy, comic. <laughs> be and twitchy. I was like, okay.
3: Here's the first two lines of Ebert's review of Four Rooms. He says Four Rooms comes billed as a friend as a film made by four friends. If they're still friends after finishing this film, that says a lot about their friendship. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Zing. that pretty much nails it Says a uh, lot about that, yeah. well gentlemen we got to wrap this up but i think what we've learned here today is uh you know what from Dust till dawn is a really cool movie and if you like horror if you like exploitation if you like vampire westerns and you want to watch something that's better than near dark uh which that's another thing which we won't get into but let's we're gonna leave you with this do all Famous directors at some point in their career, do they do they try their hand at vampire western? Because didn't Catherine Bigelow direct Near Dark? Is that she sure did? Oh my she god, did. I nailed it!
3: I lo- I- Probably her uh, like her best. Her, actually, I wouldn't say it's
1: her best movie because Point Break is clearly her best movie. Uh, Clear.
3: I'm a Strange yeah. Days fan myself. <laughs> Strange Days is good.
1: That being nope. said, uh, what are you guys putting
3: over this week, Jake? You want to start? Sure. In fact, in the realm of genre hybrids, I'm putting over a 2015 film called Bone Tomahawk, uh, which is a horror western. That's a horror western. Perfect. If See you, that segue? If you, yeah. If you wanna, if you want a western from 2015 starring Kurt Russell, that's about two thirds the length of Hateful Eight. <laughs> I got a movie for you. It's uh, really good. It flew under the radar, surprisingly, but um, it's one of the better crafted films I've seen all year, and it hmm. towards the end it features like one of the gnarliest kills I've also witnessed quite some time. You'll know when you see it. But yeah, Bone Tomahawk is definitely worth a visit.
1: Very cool. I've got it on my list of things to watch, so hopefully I I'll get to that it soon. Thing.
2: I, keep, I keep hearing about it, and it's I think it's on Amazon Prime, too. Mm-hmm. It yeah,
3: Myros, you will love it, I I guarantee. I
2: get the feeling. I, or, I can or, or, Joyce,
3: or enjoy most of it, at least, I don't know. <laughs>
2: uh, Maros, what are you putting over this week? I'm putting over the uh, new uh, Louis C.K. Zach Galifianakis project, Baskets, which just premiered on FX two weeks ago. Uh, We are two episodes in, and I kind of love it. And as someone who moved to Bakersfield at some point, the fact that it takes the piss out of Bakersfield and it's the world's largest Strip mall of a city uh, culture is uh, endlessly amusing to me. Is that where does it take place in Bakersfield? It it does it does. He's like uh, training at a French clown school to open the show, and then uh, can't speak French and gets booted out, and uh, takes the woman he marries back to his hometown of Bakersfield, California. That's beautiful. (laughs) I love it already. Yeah, it's uh, it's really. Interesting. And it's a lot more... Uh, it's from the producer of Tim and Eric as well as uh, Louis. And it's definitely skews more towards the former there. It's very bizarre. It's oh not for God. everyone. It's got a uh, definite anti-comedy bent. Uh, but it does feature uh, a plus performance from Louis Anderson as uh, Galifianakis' mother. Hmm. <laughs> That's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to say, you know, I think, I think more... TV shows and movies should really use Bakersfield as their setting because Bakersfield is a character in and of itself. Uh, it's in California, but it really feels like you're in the middle of like the Texas Panhandle. It's like you said; it's a city of like 400,000 people with zero culture and endless strip malls, and it literally smells like poop because it's in the agricultural
2: basket of California. So, yeah, yeah, we got like a toothless rodeo, uh, half the show centers around Costco, mm-hmm. uh, and there's Juggalos. It's basically, it's perfect encapsulation of, of all things Bakersfield. That's beautiful. Nice. Uh, Jack, what are you putting over this week?
0: Uh, well, I've, I wasn't prepped for this at all. But I know, uh, sorry, we kind of off, sprung off, this I'll on just,
1: you. This is a thing yeah, we I'll, do, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Just put me on stop. On this, on this, uh, uh. On the spot, I can't talk anymore. I'm I'm flustered. <laughs> um, I would I would think off the top of my head, it's, it's not a not a U.S. release. I was thinking the I've got my uh, arrows. Jack Ravette set should be hopefully arriving tomorrow, maybe Ooh. in the mail, and I'm super excited about that. I'm going to lock myself in a room and watch a 13 hour long movie called Out One that I've wanted to see for years.
1: Oh wow! Uh, which cool.
0: is going to be um, of course Jack Rivet died last week, which is a big blow for me. Yeah, that's super yeah, sad. He's awesome. Uh, so that's, that is one thing, but you know, just cause I know mostly probably it's Americans who are going to watch or listen to this and, uh, that's, that's not available in America. So you might not be able to watch that unless you have a special fancy pants, Blu-ray player.
1: Well, you can't, uh, you can't get the arrow set, but I think, is, isn't there another, how, there's a version of out one that you can watch?
0: Carlotta have released it in the U S uh, the arrow film come or the arrow set comes like Three other films and, and a oh, wow. re edited version of Out One, which is also on the US set. So uh, it's not quite the, the same value Arrow have put into it. They've got, uh, what, like, I think I guess it's five films total because Out One comes in its original 13 hour cut, uh, which was obviously unsaleable because who is going to release a 13 hour long film into cinema? <laughs> um, so he did a four hour recut, and Rivette had a tendency because. As Rivette did in his experimental bent, he would uh, re-edit films uh, to and find new films in his films when he's re-editing them. So they weren't just a, a shorter version of the original film. They were really separate films unto themselves. He did it with his La Belle Noiseuse as well. He did a Divertimento cut, which is uh, La Belle Noiseuse is about four hours long and his uh, Recut is about two hours, but focuses on a secondary character entirely. Uh, so it's oh. a new film, effectively. So um, that I am super excited about because Rivette, I think is just horribly underseen and underavailable in mm. the United States, in Europe generally. Um, I- I've like- heard
1: I've heard rumors that like and I guess the guy who one of the founders of Criterion Collection or whatever he he died or something, but that guy hated Rivette for some reason so he yeah, refused to release I've anything
0: <laughs> that that i have heard and that that's and it's it's a shame if that's what happened. i mean also what happened was a uh, new yorker used to be the label that had some of Rivette's films and they went belly up uh several years ago and i don't know if anyone's picked up his stuff because like Rivette's most popular film like far and away is that uh, uh film called Selene and Julie Go Boating, which is amazing. It's brilliant. If you can find a yeah. copy anywhere, uh hit, hit so, up the uh, uh, the, the BitTorrent sites. <laughs> mm?
1: <laughs> so you gotta hit up those BitTorrent sites because there's like oh, yeah,
3: literally yeah. nowhere uh, to get it. Much,
1: pretty much. A- but,
3: um,
0: mm-hmm.
3: Sorry sorry Jack, go ahead and finish. I was just gonna say something after that.
0: Oh, I was, uh, just saying, like, Celine and Go Boding is his most popular film, and, uh, like, by far and away his biggest success uh, in Europe and America, his best-known film, and you can't even get a copy of it easily in the U.S. anymore mm-hmm. without resorting to the Internet. So that's that's how badly represented he is. Uh, his first film is coming out in Criterion in February, so that's something. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll just put that over. I'm very excited to Jacques Rivette. Watch everything of his. Uh, cancel all your plans and just go and watch everything.
3: I think that's fair. Jake, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say, Steve, two things. One, at your insistence, I went and ordered a copy of Celine and Julie Go Boating because um, oh. I do have a region free player. So nice. I found one pretty cheap. And I can't wait. And then also, um, there's this uh, film streaming app called Fandor, F A N D O R. I believe it's about $10 a month, but it mm. has a lot of rare and hard to find out-of-print foreign films, oh. and they have the full 13-hour cut of Out 1. Holy shit. Um, so if you yeah, if you want to check that out, if it's Fandor, that's,
0: that's certainly cheaper than the $90 or so that uh, they're looking for <laughs> for the set. Yeah. A 13-hour film. Yeah, Yeah, film. Yeah, you can watch it back to back
3: with Satan Tango. I was going
0: to say that's that's like a double Satan Tango wedding, right there. I I feel yeah, no, that's it. Satan Tango and Showa, and that, and we can.
2: (laughs) Oh Jesus Christ! (laughs) You guys trying
0: to kill me? (laughs) A laugh a minute. Yeah,
1: I'm going to take my full two weeks of vacation at work so I can fucking watch three movies for a podcast. Oh, my God. You guys are killing me. Uh, Well, this week, I'm going to put over two things, actually, because you know what? Uh, I'm hosting this podcast. I do whatever the hell I want. And the first thing I'm going to put over is I'm going to put over America's medical professionals. Uh, I had a a friend of a friend was in town from Iowa. And uh, when I met her, she told me that she was a nurse. And the first thing I... I ask any nurse or doctor or person like that is, what's the most fucked up thing you've ever seen? Because obviously, what else would I care about? And she told me the best thing I've ever heard, which I'd like to share with you all right now. Uh, One time, a woman came in to the emergency room, and she came in because uh, she had decided to use mayonnaise as lube. And uh, after using mayonnaise as lube, uh, apparently she didn't wash herself afterwards, and a colony of maggots had uh, grown inside of her vagina. Yeah. So that's, so. first of all, I'm definitely putting over that. And also, that's why you should definitely choose the Tangy Zip of Miracle Whip. Uh, <laughs> the second thing that I'm putting over this week is a movie that I discovered recently, and uh, it was actually only discovered, period, like a year ago. Uh, it's a movie called Ninja Busters and it was found by a couple of guys from New Jersey they uh, there was this like this film warehouse that had been abandoned for like 25 years or something and there was just all these these movies in there like original negatives that were just left to rot and so they drove from New Jersey to the California desert and they dug around through a bunch of trash and they grabbed as many movies as they could and one of the movies that they found it was like in pristine condition it was ninja busters and they looked at imdb and this movie basically didn't exist and that's because it was filmed by a karate school and some uh, no name director in 1984 and never released it was screened one time in santa monica and it made like $20 and it was never screened again so they took it and they they put together like a beautiful blu-ray package and with like commentary and just like the full criterion collection treatment And it's it's hilarious. It's a colossal disaster. It's it's about on the same level as like Miami Connection.
0: I was thinking Miami Connection sounds like that's the double bill right there. Yeah,
1: that that would be a good shotgun winning. Ninja Busters Miami Connection. So if you are a Miami Connection fan, uh, Ninja Busters. It's it's not too bad. It's a fun watch. So get a copy uh, of that.
2: Steve, I'm gonna have to ask you next time to limit yourself to one put over because uh you're really not doing our patreon campaign any favors with your maggot vagina <laughs>
1: <story>. <laughs> are you kidding me that's that's what brings in the viewers everybody's like everybody wants to hear the man's vagina story
0: Come on, tuning in, tuning in from, from dust to dawn. But I know everyone's just kind of like, I hope they get some maggots into this one.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we brought. Sure, it. If you've we made, made it, it this far, it. you
0: wouldn't mind that story. Exactly,
1: you would not mind that story at all. And let me tell you something, though. I'm I'm really appalled by the use of mayonnaise, though, because if if you're in a situation where you just you just gotta go, but you need some lube, is mayonnaise the first condiment that you reach for? Like, can't, can't you, you think, think of, like
2: an oil of some I, sort? I, I know. I would use an out. olive oil,
1: a canola. There's all kinds of oils. And then even after yeah, that, it's like, an I can't believe it's that butter. or something. Exactly.
3: Like the, Margarine the part. The best part about your that whole story, Steve, was you put like a Don Draper spin at the end of it by saying Miracle Whip and as if you're selling it to a room full of admin <laughs> because, not to
0: use me. <laughs> that's that's exactly just, what I'm doing. I feel there's some kind of really, really dark egg on my face joke. To be found there. <laughs>
2: Well, oh, the thing uh, is, no civilized human has Miracle Whip in their house, so unfortunately <laughs> they had to reach for the mayonnaise. They had to reach for that mayonnaise, that Hellman's. 100% real. Couldn't
1: um,
3: believe it's not butter.
1: Mm good lord i'm telling you i mean honestly like outside of hot sauce i cannot think of a of a condiment i would be less inclined to reach for in that situation
0: to to oh, be fair on. i'm i'm just going to add cuz i i one of my coworkers also works trauma new york stuff and he had a great story about removing a mushroom that was growing out of someone so oh. that's something
1: that's good. Like out of their yeah. butt, or like where was it? Where no, was it no, going?
0: out out of the side of their stomach because they oh. were very obese and their flesh was dying. So, and apparently mushrooms can just thrive in that environment.
1: That's good to know.
0: Did yeah. it. so. Let's. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. Wow.
2: No more medical talk. <laughs> Wait, <Where,
1: laughs> you, you want to talk about? Psychedelic fat fold mushrooms?
2: Out, we're going to talk <laughs> about uh, media as prescribed, not uh, fucking mushroom flesh. And mushroom. Right. You know. Okay, but well, before we end this, one more thing with mayonnaise.
1: And this is, oh, this is the thing Jesus that has really, this is really troubled me, more so than anything else that has to do with this story. Now, was, was this person, obviously this person is having sex with someone, and their partner was totally okay with this. So this was a two-person decision that mayonnaise is the right call. Or there's an alternate scenario where this person is just masturbating, and they're, and they're lubing up their dildo, and they're in the throes of passion, and mayonnaise is the only choice. I just I I, I can't all right well that's been the optimism (laughs) vaccine if you like what you heard if you like mayonnaise if you like exploitation films uh, if you like Adam Myros, if you like mushrooms head over to (laughs) iTunes give us five stars that helps us out a lot when you give us stars and you write a review for us that makes our visibility even greater so that we can share stories like that with the masses. Also, make sure you head over to OptimismVaccine.com. and make sure you follow us on Twitter at optimismvaccine. If you want to follow me, my Twitter is at Steve Cuff. Uh, Jake, wait, what are you? I'm uh, Lance Stargrove. Uh, Jack, are you? Are you sort of on Twitter? What do you do?
0: I, I have a, I have a Twitter. at F G one zero five. But I I should start tweeting there again someday.
1: <laughs> uh, Adam Myros is uh, you. You can find him on AOL Instant Messenger or at the uh, which yeah, which Yahoo yeah. chat
2: rooms do you frequent? Just look me up on uh, Patreon dot com slash American Spirits.
1: <laughs> American Spirits? Are you? You're starting a Patreon company for the or a, a Patreon account for the cigarette company?
2: No, just to get me said. Just cigarette. to get
1: you American Spirits. See, that's your problem. You know, I mean, maybe if you if you smoke basics or something like a real hardworking American, but you and your bougie cigarettes, that's your problem. Uh, but yeah, that's maybe it. we'll set up a Patreon account so Maros can start smoking again. Uh, With that in mind, we will be back (laughs) next week with a completely different podcast, and thanks for listening.